Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. A challenger to former President Trump arrested on federal tax charges. The long-shot presidential candidate tried getting Trump off the multiple state ballots. Find out why he says the newly announced charges against him are political retaliation. U.S. and British forces attack 60 targets at Iranian-backed Houthi locations. Hear about the Houthi response. Israel has its day in court. Hear what the country has to say about allegations of genocide brought forth by South Africa. The House strikes down a rule by the Biden administration on EV chargers. Critics say the Biden rule could benefit China. Where will the bill go from here? Taiwan getting ready for a race that could reshape its relations with China and the U.S. A, a look at the candidates' positions on China. Tensions high in Ecuador as police and military take on two major gangs. Here was behind the dramatic spike in violence. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. A long-shot Republican presidential candidate arrested on federal tax charges. John Anthony Castro repeatedly tried getting former President Trump off the 2024 ballot. Now he's facing charges. Castro was charged with aiding the preparation of false tax returns. The Department of Justice says Castro generated false deductions for his customers while running a virtual tax business. In 2018, Castro allegedly filed fraudulent deductions for an undercover DOJ agent. Castro now criticizes the timing of his arrest and the charges years after the undercover agent's involvement. Castro started suing Trump a few months ago. He says the government going after him now is intentional targeting and political retaliation. And in Georgia, a judge is granting one of Trump's co-defendants a three-month delay in his proceedings. That's in the Fulton County election interference case. The defendant in question is Georgia State Senator Sean Still. Still now has until mid-April to file any pretrial motions. The deadline for all other filings stays in place. Former President Trump accused the judge in his New York civil fraud trial of having his own agenda in a short courtroom speech after closing arguments yesterday. The day started off with a bomb threat at the judge's house. Authorities say nothing was found, it did not delay the trial, and the judge didn't mention it. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more about the last day of the trial. Security tightened around the closing arguments in former President Trump's New York civil fraud trial on Thursday after a reported bomb threat at Judge Arthur Engeren's home. Trump on his way in called the case an unconstitutional witch hunt and quote election interference at the highest level. Trump's legal team and the office of New York Attorney General Letitia James' closing arguments were followed by a request from Trump's attorney to allow Trump two to three minutes to make his case directly to the judge. Engeren asked if Trump would keep it to within matters related to the trial, to which Trump responded he thinks the case goes beyond that. No cameras were allowed inside the courtroom, but Trump is on the record telling the judge he did nothing wrong and that the case was a, quote, political witch hunt. James is seeking nearly $370 million and a lifetime ban on Trump from the state's real estate industry. I trust that justice will be done, and I'm confident in that. And I'm extremely proud of the case that we put on. 
Trump afterwards accused President Biden of using the justice system to attack his top political opponent. He alleges it's now part of Biden's 2024 campaign strategy. The GOP frontrunner says he wants to attend all trials from now on. The documents case, I just hear where they want to try and exonerate Biden, and he didn't have the Presidential Records Act, and I do. What I did, nothing wrong. What he did, a lot of people say, substantially wrong. Uh, you can't have two tiers of justice in this country. But no, I want to go to all of my trials. Trump also addressed the issue of presidential immunity coming up in other cases, saying if a U.S. president doesn't have immunity, he'll be totally ineffective and unable to do anything. Because it will mean he'll be prosecuted, strongly prosecuted perhaps, uh, as soon as he leaves office by, his, by the opposing party. So a president of the United States, I'm not talking just me, I'm talking any president has to have immunity. Engerin has already found Trump and his co-defendants liable for fraud. Trump's two sons, Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr., are among the defendants. Engerin says he hopes to have a verdict by the end of the month. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. At the heart of Trump's New York civil fraud trial is how he valued his properties. Here to discuss that valuation and the controversy in this case is a senior attorney at Pacific Legal, Mark Miller. Mark, you specialize in property rights. Talk about the legality of the way Trump valued his properties in NYC. Yeah, good morning, Chris, and I apologize. I woke up with a bit of a frog in my throat. <clears throat> That's okay. You know, this case is remarkable. As we know, President Trump has you know criminal cases from DC to Florida, and then this civil tr fraud trial in New York City. The question is how he valued his properties really all over the country. Uh, I'm down in Florida. His Mar-a-Lago estate is at the center of the fraud. Uh, the alleged fraud. Um, it's very interesting. The banks that testified, the officials from banks that testified, said they didn't really have a concern with what the Attorney General Letitia James and her team is alleging in terms of him inflating, overinflating the values of those properties. So, although we think we know what Judge Engerin is going to decide here, he's already made a number of decisions, and now it's just a question of the dollar figure he puts on the penalties on President Trump and his organization. This is gonna go up on appeal and it won't be resolved before the election, I will tell you that. And what does the prosecution say about uh, Trump's claims about Mar-a-Lago's valuation? Yeah, the Mar-a-Lago valuation is particularly interesting if you're familiar with Palm Beach properties. Uh, this, the Mar-a-Lago estate uh, sits in the heart of Palm Beach Island. Uh, many rich uh, people live there, as we know. The uh, value that the uh, judge put on it was about $25 million, if I recall correctly. And anyone who's familiar with Palm Beach property would cast a, you know, a wary eye at that valuation. Um, a million-dollar property in Palm Beach is not really that great in a state. Um, a million dollars in, say, South Dakota, for example, would give you much more than a million in Palm Beach. Um, $25 million doesn't go very far in Palm Beach. That's going to be one that's a very discreet issue that's easy to understand. Oftentimes, you know, legal issues tend to get complicated. Lawyers, we call them Philadelphia lawyers, like to make things complicated. But that's pretty easy to understand. What is Trump Tower worth? What is Mar-a-Lago worth? We can look at that. We can make comparisons and say, this seems a little ridiculous to say this magnificent estate is only worth $25 million. Now, say a bit more about the companies that financed uh, Trump in New York. These entities um, would have carefully vetted his valuation, which has been so disputed at the, in this case. 
you know, what you've heard many people say that are very familiar with the uh, lending process that someone like a whale, as his attorney Chris Kyes described him yesterday in the closing argument, President Trump's uh, attorney, um, when, when a, a whale, if you will, goes to get a loan, they're going to be treated differently or goes to get financing, they're going to be treated differently than, say, any Tom, Dick or Harry. And that's really part of the argument here, that there's a, a value to President Trump owning an estate um, that makes it different um, than anybody else owning a piece of property or someone at, at his level. Um, that can only go so far, though. You can see how the attorney general, how Ms. James thinks that's a little preposterous and that he was actually defrauding the banks. The question there becomes who was hurt, who was injured? And Judge Engerin made the point yesterday to Mr. Kais, the lawyer for President Trump, that there doesn't need to be an injury. And although that may be legally true, from just a common sense perspective, that doesn't make sense. And oftentimes when cases go up on appeal, the appeals judges look just as much at the law, but they also look at, at common sense because yeah. the law should match what we expect should happen. When the law does not is not consistent with what we expect, people start to disregard the law. And that's not good for a society built on the rule of law like the United States. Mark, what impact could this case have on the real estate industry in New York? Well, its, it's impact could be in New York, but also across the country. Uh, it may force uh, appraisers force banks that are giving loans to look more carefully at the way uh, individuals like President Trump or organizations like the Trump Organization are estimating the values of their properties. And it could force everybody to come down in the way they value properties. Obviously, the average uh, businessman or business owner wants to estimate his properties to get as much financing as he can, the idea being he could then make more, the idea that a rising tide lifts all boats. If, if this trial is successful at the New York Appeals Court, there'll be two steps of appeals in this case. If the, um, the Intermediate Appeals Court and then there's the highest court in New York, the Court of Appeals, affirm Judge Engerin's ultimate decision, then you will see a lot of businessmen uh, reevaluating how they value their property and being a lot more careful so that they don't get alleged of the kind of fraud, they don't get accused of the kind of fraud that President Trump is accused of here. All right, Mark Miller, senior attorney at Pacific Legal, thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. Protesters overshadow a campaign stop of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The presidential candidate was speaking at an event in Iowa when he was interrupted on three separate occasions. We beat the left on banning China from buying land uh, in, in the state of Florida. We did all this stuff. The protesters accused DeSantis of being a climate criminal. They wanted to know how much money he allegedly received from oil companies. DeSantis responded, suggesting that such actions by protesters cause gas prices to rise. The governor later also criticized the protesters. He said they represent what's wrong with U.S. colleges and universities today. The protesters are young adults, and the event was held close to Iowa State University. Another massive winter storm is heading across the U.S. A possible bomb cyclone might hit communities from the northern Rockies over the Midwest all the way down to northern Florida. The storm is moving out of the west where Lake Tahoe is recovering from a deadly avalanche this week. Now those snowy, windy conditions are heading to the plains and Midwest. If the storm intensifies fast enough, it could reach the level of a bomb cyclone. That's a heavy winter storm with high winds, heavy snow and frigid temperatures. 
Today's coldest temperature was recorded near Salt Lake, Montana at almost minus 40 degrees. Republicans are worried the weather might affect voter turnout at Monday's Iowa caucuses. Forecasts predict temperatures won't exceed zero degrees in Des Moines. Warmer states all the way down to Florida are likely, to, are likely in for severe thunderstorms and possible tornadoes. All that heavy rain could put more pressure on strained infrastructure like dams. Turning our focus now to Iowa, while GOP contenders are making their final push ahead of the caucuses, residents are bracing for a new round of severe weather. A temperature drop and snow are expected overnight. Temperatures are expected to reach below zero, with an expected blizzard warning in effect today through tomorrow morning. Despite the cold, some are still optimistic about a positive turnout for the caucuses on Monday. Such an important caucus season this year. I expect a great turnout, but we just, we just never know. With, we never know how much snow we're gonna actually going to get tomorrow, and then it's going to get super cold Sunday on Monday. I think the high is like negative four at the moment or something, so... If it does, if the weather does affect it, it will be because of the temperature, not because of the snow. You know, once the day after the snowstorm hits, we're good. But it's just that it's the cold that's going to linger around. That's the issue. I couldn't say I have one specific candidate that I would choose over another. I haven't. I honestly haven't been like following it too much. But I guess I got all weekend to figure it out. Well, I don't even watch it anymore, so I, I, I'm really not keeping track of what's going on because um, we're so divided. We're, I, I wish we could just come to a middle ground, but we're divided. And so I don't keep track of what Haley and DeSantis and, well, Trump's in the news all the time, so it's hard to not know what he's doing. And TD News will bring you live coverage of the 2024 Iowa caucuses this coming Monday. Our dedicated reporters and esteemed expert panel will provide real-time updates and in-depth analysis. Join Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer on The Nation Decides 2024 as we break down the action live on Monday, January 15th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. It's going to be a historic night, so be sure to tune in. Coming up, a government watchdog will look into the communication breakdown surrounding Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's hospitalization. Hear more about the investigation and see how Republican senators are reacting. And rental car company Hertz is planning on getting rid of a third of its electric vehicle fleet. To take a look at what this change means for you, more in just a moment here on NTD News Today. The 2024 presidential election is here. Live on the ground coverage till every ballot is counted. Our dedicated team with special guests covering an election cycle unlike any other. First up, the Iowa caucuses. Iowa has the ability to engineer and jumpstart the comeback of this country. We have to have a new generational leader. Other generations stood up and pushed back, and now it's our turn. We fight for the truth. Join NTD Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer for a historic night. The biggest election we've ever had is coming up. Are you with me? The Nation Decides 2024, the Iowa caucuses. Live January 15th at 8 p.m. on NTD News.
Tensions in the Middle East as Iran-backed Houthi forces claimed they launched revenge strikes today against U.S. and U.K. warships in the Red Sea. A Houthi spokesman says the attacks were in retaliation for an assault on targets in Yemen by Western allies. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the developing story. The Houthis warned the United States and Britain would face dire consequences for what they termed a blatant act of aggression. The U.S. and U.K. military carried out airstrikes against Iran-backed Houthi forces in Yemen on Thursday, with support from Australia, Canada, the Netherlands, and Bahrain. Pentagon Press Secretary Patrick Ryder says the strikes specifically targeted facilities that were known to have radars, missiles, and UAV capabilities. We've conducted this significant multi-nation operation uh, in order to send a clear message to the Houthis uh, that the kinds of attacks that they've been conducting since November 19th, uh, 27 as of today, uh, will not be tolerated. Fighter jets can be seen here launching off into the inky blackness on a mission to punish the Iran-backed group. President Biden said he ordered the strikes as retaliation for a series of escalating attacks by the Houthi rebels on U.S. and international maritime ships in the Red Sea, a crucial commercial shipping waterway. We reserve the right to protect and defend our forces, to defend the global trade that transits through the Red Sea. A video released by Houthi-run Al-Masira TV allegedly shows the moment of the bombardment in Sana'a, Yemen. The dogs barking beneath a dark sky, a reminder that people are alike around the globe. They have pets, kids, and birthday parties. Attacks by the Houthi group, which began in mid-November, have impacted the international commercial shipping of more than 50 countries. They have escalated in recent days to include the direct targeting of American ships. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Australia said today that it provided personnel support to the U.S. and U.K. in their strikes against Houthi military groups in Yemen. Defence Minister Richard Marles discussed the operation. Australia will continue to support any actions which assert the global rules-based order, which assert the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, and which assert freedom of navigation on the high seas, be that in the Red Sea, be that in the Indo-Pacific, be that in other parts of the world. Denmark also reacted to the strikes against the Houthis in Yemen, saying the country fully supports the strikes. Denmark is home to shipping giant Maersk. The country joined a U.S. statement last week warning the Houthis to halt their attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. Maersk said earlier this month it was diverting all container vessels from Red Sea routes around Africa's Cape of Good Hope for the foreseeable future. The shipping company warned customers to prepare for significant disruption. The Dutch defense minister said one staff member was involved in the planning and coordination of the strikes. She said the country supports the U.S. and U.K.'s strikes politically and militarily. The defense chief also voiced concerns over Houthi attacks in the Red Sea. Strikes are meant to de-escalate the situation. The actual escalation is done by, by the Houthi attacks uh, on the vessels. Uh, actual commercial trade has more or less stopped uh, in, in the region. Uh, so it's, uh, it's supposed to, to de-escalate. It's too early to assess uh, effects. Uh, we will have to wait and see. 
Israel today rejected accusations of genocide brought by South Africa at the UN's top court. South Africa claims that Israel's military operation in Gaza is a state-led campaign of genocide. Israel says that depiction is grossly distorted. The applicant has regrettably put before the court <clears throat> a profoundly distorted factual and legal picture. The entirety of its case hinges on a deliberately curated, decontextualized and manipulative description of the reality of current hostilities. South Africa purports to come to this court in the lofty position of a guardian of the interest of humanity. But in delegitimizing Israel's 75-year existence in its opening presentation yesterday, that broad commitment to humanity rang hollow. The nightmarish environment created by Hamas has been concealed by the applicant, but it is the environment in which Israel is compelled to operate. Israel is committed, as it must be, to comply with the law, but it does so in the face of Hamas's utter contempt for the law. Israel called on judges to dismiss South Africa's request its to halt its offensive, saying it would leave it defenseless. South Africa filed a lawsuit at the International Court of Justice in December. It asked judges on Thursday to impose emergency measures ordering Israel to immediately halt its offensive in Gaza. The Pentagon's internal watchdog said Thursday it will review the secrecy surrounding Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's hospitalization. It will also look at why the Defense Department waited days to inform the White House that Austin had transferred authority to his deputy. Republican senators welcomed the news. When the Secretary of Defense is in so much pain that he must be removed from his residence by an ambulance, taken to a hospital, and put in the intensive care unit, that is not a minor occurrence. Imagine if there was an incident in the South China Sea. Imagine if we suffered a terrorist attack here on our homeland. Senator Roger Wicker is the top Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee. He said the Inspector General review is good news. Wicker said Republicans on the panel had expressed concerns that an internal review would be conducted by people involved in the episode. The review by the Defense Department's Inspector General is one of several now underway related to Austin's hospitalization. Some Republican committee members questioned whether Austin's being missing puts the nation at risk when there are ongoing conflicts overseas. And the House joined the Senate Thursday in striking down an electric vehicle charger rule of the Biden administration. Critics say the rule was benefiting Chinese companies. A waiver in President Biden's EV rule allows taxpayer money to fund EV chargers that are not made in America. Two House Democrats joined Republicans to reverse the administration's actions. The vote was 209 to 198. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik called the Biden rule pro-communist China and said it would undermine American businesses that have made significant investments in EV manufacturing. China currently dominates the EV charger supply chain. The Senate passed the resolution two months ago. It will now go to Biden's desk, but the White House says the president plans to veto it. House lawmakers are creating a bipartisan working group on artificial intelligence. 
The group will focus on how AI is impacting financial and housing industries. The chairman and ranking member of the Financial Technology and Inclusion Subcommittee are set to lead the working group. The group's goal is to examine existing AI regulation and then see how Congress can put new regulations in place that consider both the potential benefits and risks of AI. This comes after President Biden signed an executive order on AI in October. It focuses on risks that come with the new technology. The FAA will audit the Boeing 737 MAX 9 production line and its suppliers focusing on quality and control. That's one week after a door blew out midair on an Alaskan Airlines flight. The FAA administrator said the audit will assess safety risks around delegated authority and quality oversight. He raised the possibility of outsourcing some oversight. He said the FAA is exploring the use of an independent third party to oversee Boeing's inspections and its quality system. There's no mention of when the 737 MAX 9 will return to service. The initial audit will determine if further audits are necessary. The decision came after the FAA opened an investigation into Boeing's quality control. Boeing said yesterday it will cooperate fully with the investigation. 171 of the planes remain grounded in the U.S. Alaska and United Airlines are waiting for updated emergency inspection guidance from the FAA. Joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to discuss rental firm Hertz dumping electric vehicles. The company will sell off a third of its electric fleet. It's going to use the money to buy more gasoline-powered vehicles. Don, why is Hertz doing this? Yeah, so Hertz is selling somewhere around 20,000 electric vehicles, uh, and that's including Teslas as well. And this is a sign that maybe the electric vehicle uh, demand overall, uh, maybe it's cooling a little bit. Uh, so this is actually in spite of the fact that uh, Hertz actually previously planned to uh, actually convert a quarter of its fleet to electric vehicles by the end of this year. Uh, the car rental company said on Thursday that uh, simply the EVs, it's costing them too much. And this is uh, one of the bigger reasons why it's selling those electric vehicles. It's seeing headwinds from higher expenses uh, from its EVs, uh, particularly uh, Teslas. So specifically, it's citing higher expenses related to collision and damage. Uh, its CEO said in an analyst call that uh, collision and damage repairs for an EV actually are going twice as much as that for a combustion engine vehicle. So not only is it costing more to repair these EVs, apparently they're actually getting in more uh, accidents, uh, more crashes, and at the same time, uh, EV price declines in the overall market is pushing down resale value of Hertz's used EV rental cars. And the company is actually expected to uh, lose about $245 million due to these depreciations uh, on those EVs. Uh, so, you know, companies like Hertz um, they, they sell a lot of vehicles in the used car market. So uh, depreciation actually does have an impact on their business. And this can also be a major factor uh, when it comes to deciding which cars they would rather have on their fleet. And looking more broadly, does Hertz's decision have any kind of impact on the EV sector more broadly? Yeah, yeah. Its decision uh, potentially underscores a, a bumpy road that EVs may have hit. At this point, electric vehicle sales growth has slowed 
and causing uh, car makers, uh, for example, General Motors or Ford, uh, to scale back production plans for electric vehicles. And signs of a looming deceleration in the USAV market actually appeared uh, early last year, 2023. That's when Tesla, if you remember, slashed prices very aggressively and also put pressure on other car makers. Uh, some analysts have said that Hertz's move could be a sign that uh, EV expectations may need to be revised down a little bit. Its CEO also said that going forward, they will keep a closer eye uh, on EV demand, and this will be both at its own dealerships and at uh, its own operations. Uh, so it's going to do this to decide whether it wants to buy more vehicles or buy less vehicles going forward. And what else do you have for us today, Don? Sure, just a quick update. Uh, Tesla will suspend most car productions at its uh, factory near Berlin from January 29th to February 11th. The company is citing a lack of components and this is due to shifts in transport routes because of attacks on vessels in the Red Sea. The partial production stop is evidence that fighting in the Middle East has hit Europe's largest economy and the electric vehicle, uh, electric vehicle maker in the US is the first company to disclose a disruption to output due to the disruptions in the Red Sea. And the attacks by the Iranian-backed Houthi group have forced the world's top shipping companies as well to avoid the Suez Canal. And this is, by the way, the fastest maritime route from Asia to Europe. Just a quick update here. All right, thank you, Don. Thanks. Thank you, Don. And coming up, Taiwan is getting ready to choose its next president. Beijing has framed it as a choice between war and peace. A look at the three presidential hopeful stance on China. That and more when we return. And police and military in Ecuador say they dismantled two major gangs. Hear what's behind the dramatic spike in violence. We'll have the details soon when we return. Taiwan is gearing up for its presidential election this Saturday. The three men competing for the throne trying to prove they are the best pick. Who are they and what are their stances on China? Let's take a closer look. Thousands of supporters yesterday attended a rally for Taiwan's ruling party, the Democratic Progressive Party. Its candidate, William Lai, is Taiwan's current vice president. Beijing wants him out, accusing him of being a separatist. The international community has realized the threat China poses to Taiwan and the international community. In fact, everyone is already preparing to respond. We should strengthen our own strength and unite and cooperate to ensure peace. The Chinese regime sees Taiwan as part of China despite never having ruled the island. Beijing has framed the election as a decision between war and peace. The presidential hope for the, for the Kuomintang opposition party slamming William Lai Thursday, accusing him of supporting Taiwan's independence. The risk of his election is much higher than anyone else's. Hence, in war, there cannot be any what-ifs. The risk of war must be reduced to zero. Peace is the only option. China on Wednesday also warned that electing William Lai could bring Taiwan closer to war. William Lai said he would keep the status quo if elected, adding he's open to engaging with Beijing. 
Ho's party, Kuomintang, traditionally favors closer ties with China, but denies being pro-Beijing. And now we zoom in on Ke Wenjie, the Taiwan People's Party candidate. Ke on Friday said he's the best choice for Taiwan's diplomacy. He described himself as the person both Beijing and Washington would have no problem with. Over the years, the people of Taiwan have grown tired of the incessant blue-green political strife. They only look after the interests of their parties and ignore the rights and interests of the people. Ke takes a more ambitious stance on China than his rivals. He says his bottom line for dealing with China is that Taiwan's democracy and way of life must be respected. He also stresses that China is Taiwan's most important market. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken is set to meet with senior Chinese regime official Lu Jianchao in Washington today. Lu is the head of the Chinese Communist Party's international department. He once led the regime's so-called Operation Fox Hunt. The U.S. has criticized the program as transnational repression, being used to target Chinese dissidents. Tactics include pressure on families in mainland China and even kidnappings. The Chinese regime says Taiwan is a red line and the most dangerous issue in U.S.-China relations and warns any move toward formal independence by Taiwan means conflict. Washington has warned the Chinese Communist Party not to interfere in the island's elections. It says Beijing will be the instigator if it chooses to respond with more military pressure. And with tensions be between the U.S. and Beijing only increasing, Taiwan's election could have international ramifications. Voters and pundits are weighing in ahead of the crucial date. Voters in Taiwan are heading to the polls this weekend to choose their new president. This election may be especially important. The CCP in Beijing has been increasing pressure on Taiwan for the last year and a half, conducting major war games and firing missiles into waters off the island. This election's forerunner, Lai Ching-te of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, he has urged voters not to be swayed by the Chinese regime's threats while offering talks with the CCP and pledging not to upset the status quo. But some voters would prefer a harder stance. There are so many people living on this island. Our direction has to be even more firm, to say that it is us who are inhabiting this island and whoever wants to come and assault this island will face our resistance. I really hope that the candidate who can lead Taiwan to be normalized country can be chosen. I think no matter who we vote for, there isn't likely going to be a war anytime soon. This is my feeling. International policy analyst Stephen Tan believes domestic policies are crucial to Taiwan's stance in the global landscape. This is an election to out uphold our own identity, to preserve what we have, and to try to improve uh, in the next year or years. Meanwhile, the U.S. is watching the election closely. The White House believes that the result of this election could send ripples through the international community. In a meeting last month, the Chinese regime leader told President Joe Biden that Taiwan was the most dangerous issue between Beijing and Washington. Retired General Robert Spaulding is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He spoke about fears that the CCP might try to influence the Taiwanese election. You know, their goal is really to uh, reunify the country through subversion, basically influence the population to give up its freedoms and join the Communist Party as essentially the slaves of, uh, of the Communist Party. But I think 
you know, that's not going to happen. I don't see that happening anytime soon with the Taiwanese people. Taiwan's next president-elect will take office on May 20th. The upcoming months will likely be crucial for Taiwan and the rest of the world. CCP leader Xi Jinping is carrying out a purge of the military and facing economic problems of his own. How he reacts to the election outcome will be key. And next, Taiwan's defense ministry said today it detected five Chinese balloons flying over the Taiwan Strait in the past 24 hours, one of which crossed the island. It's the latest in a spate of such balloons the ministry says it has spotted over the past month. The ministry this month accused China of threatening aviation safety and waging psychological warfare on the island's people with the balloons right before the elections. Armed forces in Ecuador moved yesterday against groups the government has deemed terrorists. It's part of the country's efforts to restore law and order. Officials say they dismantled two major gangs. Ecuadorian authorities seized many firearms and arrested 14 people as part of the operations on Thursday. Military and police were, were responding to a wave of violence un, unleashed by criminal gangs. Gang members are also holding nearly 180 prison staff hostage. The government pleaded to pledged to wage war on gangs they blame for the unrest. The dramatic spike in violence appears to be a response to the president's plan to crack down on gangs. Coming up, disordered eating is a source of concern in the rock climbing community. A group of elite climbers are now calling for action ahead of this year's Olympics. And a pony is bringing joy to patients at a hospice in Moscow. What's unique about this special equine therapy? More shortly here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. A group of elite climbers is speaking out about eating disorders and relative energy deficiency in sport. They want international groups to stop unhealthy athletes from competing, including at this year's Olympics. Here's more. Ahead of the 2024 Olympics, elite climbers are raising the alarm on eating disorders. Losing weight in climbing is always seen as a good thing. Ugh. Kai Leitner is one of them. He was a youth climbing world champion, but at 14, he was told his liver was close to failure. He also fractured his spine in two places and realized the restrictions he put on his eating had spun out of control. With climbing, it's just the obsession with thinness in our sport is so pervasive that it doesn't seem out of place. Though he was never diagnosed, Leitner is speaking out about relative energy deficiency in sport, or REDS, where athletes don't eat enough to fuel themselves. It was recognized by the International Olympics Committee as a syndrome in 2014, and its effects can lead to low immunity, decreased bone density, and disturbed sleep, as well as increased risk of injury. It's widespread in gymnastics, ice skating, artistic swimming, endurance, and weight class sports. In a 2022 survey of female sport climbers, 15% said they currently had an eating disorder, while almost 16% said they didn't have periods, a common red symptom. I mean, there's a lot of teams, which I won't mention by name, but that happen around the world that require certain weight requirements from their athletes. Like they, they, they 
persuade them to lose weight, like national federations. And, you know, that's just normal. Leitner and other athletes are calling for the International Federation of Sport Climbing to stop unhealthy athletes from competing, including at Paris 2024. Ukrainian climber Genya Kazbakova says for years, the IFSC told athletes it was impossible for them to come up with regulations. Their solution was to leave it to the national federations. That's where the problems occurred in the first place, where national federations were very much into having results and medals. So that just goes against banning or trying to do something about athletes who are unhealthy if they are bringing the results. The IFSC used to measure climbers' body mass index to flag athletes dangerously underweight, though it didn't stop anyone from competing. But it stopped doing even that last year at World Cups without any explanation. The measure was reintroduced in 2023 after public outcry, and doctors even resigned over the issue. IFSC President Marco Scaleris says stronger rules are being developed for 2024. I trust uh, my team, I trust this new medical commission, I'm sure that we'll find the, the proper way to, to guarantee that, that, that uh, health, only healthy athletes can participate in Paris. Scalera says to protect athletes, REDS regulations need to withstand legal challenges, adding that if the IFSC lost a court case, it might have to shelve the policy for one to two years. And then we will authorize those who are unhealthy to compete when maybe with the proper approach, we will limit the damage for them. And deep restorative sleep can be achieved through simple attention to our daily routine and sleep environment. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. ever awakened after a seemingly good night's sleep to not feel refreshed at all? Well, poor sleep quality may be due to several factors. Let's start by looking at emotional stress. Our modern day high pressure work environments can result in symptoms of depression and anxiety. It can also pave the path for poor quality or lack of sleep. Thoughts can be difficult to turn off causing wakefulness or light sleep. This is a condition of clinical insomnia. Let's look at another factor, feeling unwell. Physical discomforts ranging from reflux to restless leg syndrome or even challenges like heart palpitations and asthma can significantly impact the tranquility of your sleep. Another aspect to poor quality sleep may be a disrupted circadian rhythm. Dozing off or sleeping during the day can make it difficult to sleep at night. On the flip side, burning the midnight oil can also disrupt the sleep cycle. Acute insomnia will upset circadian rhythms. If you suffer from poor sleep for more than three days within a week, and this condition lasts for more than a month, it's called acute insomnia. Insomnia lasting for more than three months is considered chronic insomnia. So let's get seven tips to achieve a deep and restorative sleep. Number one, proper adjustment of circadian rhythm. Spend more time outdoors in the sunlight as it can help to regulate melatonin. Avoid sleeping in, and if you take daytime naps, keep them brief, no longer than 20 minutes. Hit the hay between 10 p.m. and 11 p.m. Number two, create a high quality environment for sleeping. A quiet, dark and cool environment can help you to sleep. People with tinnitus can find help by listening to white noise. Room temperature for optimum sleep is between 60 and 68 Fahrenheit. Number four, avoid using electronic devices before going to bed. 
blue light will disrupt one's circadian rhythm. Avoid electronic devices at least one hour before going to sleep. Number five, eat at the right times and avoid drinking caffeine in the evening. Having a full belly or being too hungry can keep us awake. Eat a light dinner two or three hours before bed. And number six, exercise. Moderate exercise such as walking after dinner can help to improve sleep quality. It's best to avoid strenuous exercises three hours before bedtime. A volunteer and her pony named Dietrich have been visiting hospices around Moscow for over a year. The duo provides a bit of happiness for patients in palliative care. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Equine therapy can help alleviate stress. In Moscow, Anastasia Kozer and her pony Dietrich have visited patients at hospices since November 2022. I've been looking for many years on social media at owners of miniature horses and ponies in Europe and the United States. It's very common there. They go to hospices and nursing homes, hospitals. I've always wanted to do the same. In many parts of the world, support animals have been used for a long time. Advocates say they provide a range of benefits, such as releasing endorphins and easing loneliness. Dietrich isn't shy. He's playful and has a habit of smacking his lips. When he lived in a field, that would grab people's attention. Dietrich is just wonderful. I want to share him with everybody. I thought that people in hospices didn't have an opportunity to visit a stable or have contact with animals, and I think they lack this animal companionship, animal warmth. I take pleasure in being able to give people this opportunity. Medical staff and hospice professionals in Moscow agree. Many of their patients miss being able to pet an animal or care for a pet. Dietrich's visits can be a happy distraction for some long-term patients. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Israel has its day in court. Hear what the country has to say about allegations of genocide brought forth by South Africa. U.S. and British forces attack 60 targets at Iranian-backed Houthi locations. Hear about the Houthi response. A challenger to former President Trump arrested on federal tax charges. The long-shot presidential candidate tried getting Trump off multiple state ballots. Find out why he says the newly announced charges against him are political retaliation. 
GOP candidates have their eyes on the upcoming Iowa caucuses, but the busy campaign schedule is interrupted by cold winter weather. We'll take you on the ground in Iowa. Taiwan getting ready for a race that could reshape its relations with China and the U.S. A look at the candidates' positions on China. In the NFL, a frigid cold front in Kansas City has threatened to turn the Chiefs-Dolphins game into another ice bowl. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss. The world's biggest cruise ship, five times larger than the Titanic, is about to set sail. We get a look inside the Royal Caribbean's icon of the seas. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Tensions in the Middle East as Iran-backed Houthi forces claimed they launched revenge strikes today against U.S. and U.K. warships in the Red Sea. A Houthi spokesman says the attacks were in retaliation for an assault on targets in Yemen by Western allies. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the developing story. The Houthis warned the United States and Britain would face dire consequences for what they termed a blatant act of aggression. The U.S. and U.K. military carried out airstrikes against Iran-backed Houthi forces in Yemen on Thursday, with support from Australia, Canada, the Netherlands, and Bahrain. Pentagon Press Secretary Patrick Ryder says the strikes specifically targeted facilities that were known to have radars, missiles, and UAV capabilities. We've conducted this significant multi-nation operation uh, in order to send a clear message to the Houthis uh, that the kinds of attacks that they've been conducting since November 19th, uh, 27 as of today, uh, will not be tolerated. Fighter jets can be seen here launching off into the inky blackness on a mission to punish the Iran-backed group. President Biden said he ordered the strikes as retaliation for a series of escalating attacks by the Houthi rebels on U.S. and international maritime ships in the Red Sea, a crucial commercial shipping waterway. We reserve the right to protect and defend our forces, to defend the global trade that transits through the Red Sea. A video released by Houthi-run Al-Masira TV allegedly shows the moment of the bombardment in Sana'a, Yemen. The dogs barking beneath a dark sky, a reminder that people are alike around the globe. They have pets, kids, and birthday parties. Attacks by the Houthi group, which began in mid-November, have impacted the international commercial shipping of more than 50 countries. They have escalated in recent days to include the direct targeting of American ships. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And Australia said today that it provided personnel support to the U.S. and U.K. in their strikes against Houthi military targets in Yemen. Defense Minister Richard Marles discusses the operation. Australia will continue to support any actions which assert the global rules-based order, which assert the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, and which assert freedom of navigation on the high seas, be that in the Red Sea, be that in the Indo-Pacific, be that in other parts of the world. Denmark also reacted to the strikes against the Houthis in Yemen, saying the country fully supports the strikes. 
Denmark is home to shipping giant Maersk. The country joined a U.S. statement last week warning the Houthis to halt their attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. The Dutch defense minister said one staff officer was involved in the planning and coordination of the strikes. She said the country supports the U.S. and U.K.'s strikes politically and militarily. The defense chief also voiced concerns over Houthi attacks in the Red Sea. Strikes are meant to de-escalate the situation. The actual escalation is done by, by the Houthi attacks uh, on the vessels. Uh, actual commercial trade has more or less stopped uh, in, in the region. Uh, so it's, uh, it's supposed to, to de-escalate. It's too early to assess uh, effects. Uh, we will have to wait and see. Israel today rejected accusations of genocide brought by South Africa at the UN's top court. South Africa claims that Israel's military operation in Gaza is a state-led campaign of genocide. Israel says that depiction is grossly distorted. The applicant has regrettably put before the court <coughs> a profoundly distorted factual and legal picture. The entirety of its case hinges on a deliberately curated, decontextualized and manipulative description of the reality of current hostilities. South Africa purports to come to this court in the lofty position of a guardian of the interest of humanity. But in delegitimizing Israel's 75-year existence in its opening presentation yesterday, that broad commitment to humanity rang hollow. The nightmarish environment created by Hamas has been concealed by the applicant but it is the environment in which Israel is compelled to operate. Israel is committed, as it must be, to comply with the law, but it does so in the face of Hamas's utter contempt for the law. Israel called on judges to dismiss South Africa's request to halt its offensive, saying it would leave it defenseless. South Africa filed the lawsuit at the International Court of Justice in December. It asked judges on Thursday to impose emergency measures, ordering Israel to immediately halt its offensive in Gaza. And here live to discuss the case is Gerard Felidi, senior counsel at the Lawfare Project. Gerard, what are the legal implications of South Africa's genocide claim against Israel? Well, let, let me start by saying that this case baffles many, many people, many legal scholars. There is it, it's absurd that a country that is now defending itself from an attempt by Hamas to commit genocide against the Jewish people is being brought before an international court to itself answer spurious charges of genocide. This delegitimizes the international court, this delegitimizes the United Nations, and really makes it a political issue instead of a, a judicial one. So that, that's really the biggest concern here, is that by even taking this case, the International Court of Justice is showing that it's a political body and not a judicial one. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that it did accept that case. What, looking at Israel's uh, arguments that it's made so far, what, how does it fit with international law and, and the strength of, of their case? Israel's conduct in the war and the arguments that it has made completely accord with international law, with international legal principles on how it can defend itself, on the type of military exercises it can conduct to defend itself. Israel has not been looking to commit genocide. Israel has been defending itself and using force to do so. This force is allowed under international law. 
Unfortunately, there are civilian populations that suffer in war, and that includes civilian populations in Gaza. That's not a genocide. That's not a claim to be brought before an international tribunal, but rather a proper and valid exercise of force by Israel in response to Hamas terrorist aggression. And Israel is uh, accusing Hamas of obviously uh, embedding their people within civilians, which would have you know, increased the amount of casualties. Uh, how does international law address issues like this? Well, that's, that's the hard part. International law should be on the side of the victims. It should be on the side of Israel. Unfortunately, it's not, which in this case is a good thing because the International Court of Justice doesn't really have any enforcement mechanism. Whatever decision the justices eventually come to, it's not something that can be enforced. There's no UN police force or UN army to enforce it. So ultimately, this becomes a political policy issue. This becomes a propaganda piece for pro-Palestinian activists. It's not something that is capable of being resolved. Ultimately, what's needed is countries to step in and to help Israel eradicate Hamas and to bring about a lasting, stable peace in Gaza and in the Middle East. And Israel is accusing South Africa of distorting the reality in Gaza and functioning as the legal arm of the Hamas terrorist group. What do you say to that? argument. Well, I think that's certainly what it looks like. South Africa, which has a history of Jew hatred that's been institutionalized for many years, it's not unsurprising that this is what South Africa is doing. And perhaps as a response, it's time for Israel's allies like the United States, the United Kingdom and European countries to impose sanctions on South Africa because it is essentially aiding and abetting an international terrorist organization. All right. Thank you so much. Gerard Felitti, Senior Counsel at the Lawfare Project. Appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, one of Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia election case wins a three-month delay. We have the latest. And GOP candidates have their eyes on the upcoming Iowa caucus, but the busy campaign schedule is interrupted by cold winter weather. We'll take you on the ground in Iowa in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Thank you for staying with us. A long-shot Republican presidential candidate arrested on federal tax charges. John Anthony Castro repeatedly tried getting former President Trump off the 2024 ballot. Now he's facing charges. Castro was charged with aiding the preparation of false tax returns. The Department of Justice says Castro generated false deductions for his customers while running a virtual tax business. In 2018, Castro allegedly filed fraudulent deductions for an undercover DOJ agent. Castro now criticizes the timing of his arrest and the charges years after the undercover agent's involvement. Castro started suing Trump a few months ago. He says the government going after him now is intentional targeting and political retaliation. And in Georgia, a judge is granting one of Trump's co-defendants a three-month delay in his proceedings. That's in the Fulton County election interference case. The defendant in question is Georgia State Senator Sean Still. Still now has until mid-April to file any pretrial motions. The deadline for all other filings stays in place. Protesters overshadow a campaign stop of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The presidential candidate was speaking at an event in Iowa when he was interrupted on three separate occasions. 
We beat the left on banning China from buying land uh, in, in the state of Florida. We did all this stuff. The protesters accused DeSantis of being a climate criminal. They wanted to know how much money he allegedly received from oil companies. DeSantis responded, suggesting that such actions by protesters caused gas prices to rise. The governor later also criticized the protesters. He said they represent what's wrong with U.S. colleges and universities today. Protesters are young adults, and the event was held close to Iowa State University. Turning our focus now to Iowa, while GOP contenders are making their final push ahead of the caucuses, residents are bracing for a new round of severe weather. A temperature drop and snow are expected overnight. Temperatures are expected to reach below zero, with an expected blizzard warning in effect today through tomorrow morning. Despite the cold, some are still optimistic about a positive turnout for the caucuses on Monday. It's such an important caucus season this year. I expect a great turnout, but we just, we just never know. With, we never know how much snow we're gonna actually going to get tomorrow, and then it's going to get super cold Sunday to Monday. I think the high is like negative four at the moment or something. So if it does, if the weather does affect it, it will be because of the temperature, not because of snow. You know, once the day after the snowstorm hits, we're good. But it's just that it's the cold that's going to linger around. That's the issue. I couldn't say I have one specific candidate that I would choose over another. I haven't, I honestly haven't been like following it too much, but I guess I got all weekend to figure it out. Well, I don't even watch it anymore, so I, I, I'm really not keeping track of what's going on because um, we're so divided. We're, I, I wish we could just come to a middle ground, but we're divided. And so I don't keep track of what Haley and DeSantis and well, Trump's in the news all the time, so it's hard to not know what he's doing. Snow again derailing GOP presidential hopefuls campaign events in Iowa. Iowans are also bracing for the coldest caucus night ever in history. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao, who's in Des Moines, Iowa. Good afternoon to you, Iris. How is the snow impacting events and what are we expecting on caucus night? Good afternoon to both of you. So we all thought that Monday will be the last day for all the event cancellations, but no, we were proven wrong. It's again snowing here in Iowa a lot. Nikki Haley had to cancel all of her three in-person campaign events today, and changing them to a virtual format. And Governor Ron DeSantis also canceled two of his events this morning, and we do expect him to cancel more events upcoming this coming this afternoon. Meanwhile, former President Trump's campaign team also had to cancel one event slated for tonight featuring a Kerry Lake, which we were going to go to, but now apparently it's canceled due to weather reasons. So a lot of cancellations again happening today. And it's not even the worst just yet. As you mentioned, temperatures will start to plunge on Saturday, which is coming up in just a few hours. And by the time that voters will need to come out to caucus on Monday at 6 p.m., the temperatures will drop to below zero, around negative three degrees. And with all the winds, it's going to be feeling like negative 22 degrees. And people People say it is the coldest caucus night in Iowa in history.
Meanwhile, of course, as you mentioned, the snow is not the biggest factor. The temperature is. We heard Trump's campaign telling us that it was normal for Iowans just wear a coat and bundle up is going to be all fine. But it really depends on how much passion they have for their candidates that they support to actually decide where to come out. And, and in case you're wondering how caucus work, people will need to come out on caucus night and listen to speeches given by surrogates of the different candidates at caucus sites and then write the name of the person they support on a piece of paper and turn them in. So a lot to watch for in the coming days, especially as Iowa is going to have the first voting event across the nation. And that's it is why it's getting all the attention it's getting. It's whoever comes out ahead in it will really get a lot of more momentum in this 2024 presidential race. And Trump is going to return to Iowa this upcoming weekend for more campaign events. And hopefully it's not going to snow anymore. But temperatures will definitely make us all, you know, be really cautious about driving and going out. Back to you. Thank you, Iris. Stay warm there. And cyber attacks targeting 2024 elections. Cybersecurity firm Arctic Wolf surveyed state and local government leaders about their level of preparedness for these types of attacks. I spoke with the director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, Jessica Malusian, for a closer look at this report. Jessica Malusian, thank you so much for joining us. How prepared are U.S. states for cyber attacks targeting elections? Well, according to the people who are running them, they don't feel very prepared, right? We see that only a small percentage feel like they're really in a position to react to whatever happens before and during the election. So those are not encouraging results we see from these poll numbers. And I think that happens in the backdrop of sort of a larger American concern around election integrity. Um, we're still fighting about what may or may not have happened in 2020 as we roll into the 2024 race here. And I think that we haven't experienced that kind of skepticism about election integrity probably since the 1960s where there were civil rights voting concerns. So we went through a big period where we still argued about politics, but we felt pretty good about the results of elections being the actual true result. And we're seeing that shift now. What kinds of election-focused cyber attacks could states be facing this election cycle? So I think it helps to think about it in, in two sections. One is what you are reading on social media or seeing online about the election in the run-up to voting day. That can be misinformation or disinformation, depending on what you want to call it. And you know every social media platform is trying to deal with that a little bit differently, but they are trying to do that. They've learned some lessons from both domestic and international um, pot stirring up to the 2020 election. Um, and then the second part of that is actual technical cyber threats to the integrity of voting machines and systems, the counting of votes, the reporting of votes. And it's a complicated thing because in the U.S., you know, it's not like the, there's one federal agency running everything, right? This, these responsibilities fall to the states and local yeah. communities. So even though they're all trying to accomplish the same thing, um, getting everyone who's supposed to vote voting and counting the votes correctly, they go about it in very, very different ways. It's not uniform across the country. And Jessica, where do officials suspect these attacks could be coming from? Well, I think some of the misinformation they're surely right about. They're going to see people trying to cause trouble about things that may or may not be true. I would urge people, you know, go to your trusted site, check these things out, don't believe everything you see. And I think there's also concerns about that influence not just on voters, but also on election officials. So I, I bet those people are, are uh, being very careful 
about where their information is coming from. And I think the second thing is the integrity of those voting systems. So making sure that all the voting machines have been tested, that there's a paper trail is a really good way to be able to convert voting results on the actual voting day. So I think they're worried about a, a bunch of different points, the influence on voters, the influence on election officials, and also sort of hardware concerns about how we physically vote, whether on paper ballot, machines, and how those numbers are transferred um, to be counted. And I think there's a number of points of vulnerability there. And, and I, I, I have a good feeling that election officials are thinking through all of those possible scenarios right about now. What can states do to get prepared for this? Well, I think there are federal resources available. Um, there's a cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency that's put up some great information. There's resources available there. Um, I think this is an education game, right? And hopefully they'll also be in touch with each other and sharing best practices. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's not one cohesive plan, right? Every state does this a little differently. They're gonna need to come up with plans for themselves. But I think this is the time to, they should really get educated, get prepared and, and learn from the past. All right, Jessica Malusian, thank you so much. Coming up, a government watchdog will look into the communication breakdown surrounding Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's hospitalization. Hear more about the investigation and see how Republican senators are reacting. And the House strikes down a rule by the Biden administration on EV chargers. Critics say the Biden rule could benefit China. Where will the bill go from here? We'll have the details soon when we return. The 2024 presidential election is here. Live on the ground coverage till every ballot is counted. Our dedicated team with special guests covering an election cycle unlike any other. First up, the Iowa caucuses. Iowa has the ability to engineer and jumpstart the comeback of this country. We have to have a new generational leader. Other generations stood up and pushed back, and now it's our turn. We fight for the truth. Join NTD Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer for a historic night. The biggest election we've ever had is coming up. Are you with me? The Nation Decides 2024, the Iowa caucuses. Live January 15th at 8 p.m. on NTD News. Welcome back. The FAA will audit the Boeing 737 MAX 9 production line and its suppliers focusing on quality control. That's one week after a door plug blew out midair on Alaska Airlines flight. The FAA administrator said the audit will assess safety risks around delegated authority and quality oversight. And he raised the possibility of outsourcing some oversight. He said the FAA is exploring the use of an independent third party to oversee Boeing's inspections and its quality system. There's no mention of when the 737 MAX 9 will return to service. The initial audit will, will determine if further audits are necessary. The decision came after the FAA opened an investigation into Boeing's quality control. Boeing said yesterday it will cooperate fully with the investigation. 171 of the planes remain grounded in the U.S. Alaska and United Airlines are waiting for updated emergency inspection guidance from the FAA. The Pentagon's internal watchdog said Thursday it will review the secrecy surrounding Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's 
hospitalization. It will also look at why the Defense Department waited days to inform the White House that Austin had transferred authority to his deputy. Republican senators welcomed the news. When the Secretary of Defense is in so much pain that he must be removed from his residence, Senator Roger Wicker is the top Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee. He said the Inspector General review is good news. Wicker said Republicans on the panel had expressed concern that an internal review would be conducted by people involved in the episode. The review by the Defense Department's Inspector General is one of several now underway related to Austin's hospitalization. Some Republican committee members questioned whether Austin's being missing puts the nation at risk when there are ongoing conflicts overseas. And the House joined the Senate Thursday in striking down an electric vehicle charger rule of the Biden administration. Critics say the rule was benefiting Chinese companies. A waiver in President Biden's EV rule allows taxpayer money to fund EV chargers that are not made in America. Two House Democrats joined Republicans to reverse the administration's actions. The vote was 209 to 198. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik called the Biden rule pro-communist China and said it would undermine American businesses that have made significant investments in EV manufacturing. China currently dominates the EV charger supply chain. The Senate passed the resolution two months ago. It will now go to Biden's desk, but the White House says the president plans to veto it. Republicans are bemoaning Dr. Anthony Fauci's testimony to Congress this week, saying it uncovered drastic failures. Fauci told Congress that the six-foot social distancing rule during the pandemic was likely not based on any data. And he also said he couldn't point to any specific source for that recommendation. Earlier, we spoke with the author of Liberty or Lockdown, Jeffrey Tucker, for his analysis. Tucker is also founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. Considering people's reliance on scientists during the whole pandemic, what kind of effect do you think this admission could have on people's sense of trust in the established scientific and health authorities? What's a little strange about Fauci's answer is that, first of all, it's one of the few questions he actually answered was something other than, I don't recall, in which he said a hundred times to every other question. But when it came to social distancing, he said it just sort of came out of nowhere. Uh, so he didn't uh, have any any uh, information whatsoever, uh, which is fascinating. And interestingly, we've known this for about three years. The New York Times in March of 2021 wrote an article that said essentially the same thing. They did some research, called up CDC, called up various scientists, and nobody could affirm that the six feet of distance thing made any difference. And what occasioned that uh, article was was a an empirical study of something like a thousand uh, school kids, and they had uh, some of them uh, stand six feet apart, and others only do three feet, and they could find no statistically significant difference in infection rates. And it does sort of echo what happened with the lockdowns themselves, because it was not standard uh, man management procedure. Uh, for managing pandemics to have lockdowns, that was acknowledged already as something that was not effective. And yet we did have that implemented. And there was something about links to China there. What do we know about that? Right. So um, 
mostly we've believed that these social distancing regulations and lockdowns and all the silliness came out of 2005 with a Sandia National Laboratory study and we all know the story of the of the scientists with the 16-year-old daughter who was afraid of cooties and that sort of thing. Uh, but my researcher, Michael Sanger, uh, came up with a very interesting observation that all the way from 2003 and 2004, when, when the CCP in, in China started controlling for SARS-1, uh, all the way back then, which was quite deadly, actually, SARS-1, uh, they implemented a six-foot of distance rule, social distancing and lockdowns, even for SARS-1. And the World Health Organization, even all the way back then, so we're talking, you know, whatever, you know, 19 years ago, but when lockdowns happened here, this was, you know, whatever, 16 years uh, prior, uh, all the way back then they were imposing social distancing. So that is actually more than likely the source of all of this stuff. What happened was SARS-1 didn't really spread outside of uh, China and Singapore. There were some cases in Canada, but it did sort of stop in its tracks. And the CCP took credit for it, and the World Health Organization said, yeah, that's right, CCP deserves credit. So when SARS-2 came along, people were looking at that, and then, of course, uh, the CCP granted these Potemkin village tours of Wuhan and five other cities in the February of 2020 to say, oh, look, we did what we did in SARS-1, and we once again controlled the great virus. So, yeah, in many ways, uh, it's an illustration of the strange way in which the CCP uh, communists had a profound influence over the response of Western governments, uh, really uh, all, over, all over the world, but in the United States and Commonwealth countries, uh, inspired them to do exactly what the Communist Party did. And keep in mind uh, one last point. Uh, the purpose of these uh, CCP controls, both in 2003 and 2004 and in 2020, was not really infection uh, disease mitigation. It was just a political uh, ploy to gain more power over the people and intimidate them with shock and awe. Within China, you're saying? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's eye-opening to think of that. Thank you yep. so much, Jeffrey Tucker. Great to speak with you. Taiwan is gearing up for its presidential election this Saturday. The three men competing for the throne trying to prove they are the best pick. Who are they and what are their stances on China? Let's take a closer look. Thousands of supporters yesterday attended a rally for Taiwan's ruling party, the Democratic Progressive Party. Its candidate, William Lai, is Taiwan's current vice president. Beijing wants him out, accusing him of being a separatist. The international community has realized the threat China poses to Taiwan and the international community. In fact, everyone is already preparing to respond. We should strengthen our own strength and unite and cooperate to ensure peace. The Chinese regime sees Taiwan as part of China. Despite never having ruled the island, Beijing has framed the election as a decision between war and peace. The presidential hopeful for the Kuomintang opposition party slamming William Lai Thursday, accusing him of supporting Taiwan's independence. The risk of his election is much higher than anyone else's. Hence, in war, there cannot be any what-ifs. The risk of war must be reduced to zero. Peace is the only option. 
China on Wednesday also warned that electing William Lai could bring Taiwan closer to war. William Lai said he would keep the status quo if elected, adding he's open to engaging with Beijing. Ho's party, Kuomintang, traditionally favors closer ties with China but denies being pro-Beijing. And now we zoom in on Ke Wenzhe, the Taiwan People's Party candidate. Ke on Friday said he's the best choice for Taiwan's diplomacy. He described himself as the person both Beijing and Washington would have no problem with. Over the years, the people of Taiwan have grown tired of the incessant blue-green political strife. They only look after the interests of their parties and ignore the rights and interests of the people. Ke takes a more ambiguous stance on China than his rivals. He says his bottom line for dealing with China is that Taiwan's democracy and way of life must be respected. He also stresses that China is Taiwan's most important market. And Taiwan's defense ministry said today it detected five Chinese balloons flying over the Taiwan Strait in the past 24 hours, one of which crossed the island. It's the latest in a spate of such balloons the ministry says it has spotted over the past month. The ministry this month accused China of threatening aviation safety and waging psychological warfare on the island's people with the balloons right before the elections. Coming up in the NFL, could we see a repeat of the famed Ice Bowl this weekend? Dave Martin joins us to discuss the coldest game in league history when we return. And what can you do to keep your New Year's resolution this year? So many of us fail to follow through on these special goals we set for ourselves. We'll get answers from a productivity coach after the break. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, the NFL playoffs start tomorrow with six games in just three days. What matchups are you looking forward to? Well, pretty much all of them, but there's a few that really stand out. You know, it was first revealed the uh, Pittsburgh versus Buffalo game. That really looked good. TJ Watt and the Steelers defense against Josh Allen. But Watt, unfortunately, is going to be injured. I think Buffalo is going to roll in that one. The Rams-Lions game should be a good one, too. It'll be like a, a grudge match, I think. The two teams traded quarterbacks three years ago. Jared Goff has really revived his career in Detroit. Meanwhile, the Rams, they got a Super Bowl win out of Matt Stafford, so they, they won the trade there. I like Detroit in this one, though. I'm also interested in Dallas-Green Bay, only because the Cowboys should roll in this one, but they haven't always been at their best in the playoffs, so I was, I'm always interested to see, you know, which team's going to show up. Now, Dave, speaking of the playoffs, some are saying the Chiefs-Dolphins game in frigid Kansas City could resemble the legendary Ice Bowl of 50 years ago. What made that game so memorable? Well, at the time, this is New Year's Eve 1967, it was the coldest game in league history. It was minus 13 degrees at the kickoff, but the windshield was like in the negative 40s. The game was in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and the Packers were playing the Cowboys for the NFL Championship. So it was a big game, of course. As an aside, I think this is why the Super Bowl is always in a warm weather state or in a dome. Anyway, what made it even worse is that they, they had this heating system underneath their field and a tarp on the grass. Somehow, though, the, the heaters malfunctioned, and when they removed the tarp, there was like this layer of dew between the tarp and the field that instantly froze. So in addition to being frozen themselves, the players were playing this whole game on a sheet of ice. 
You know, in any case, there were reports of frostbitten hands. The officials couldn't even use their whistles because they would have been frozen to their lips. They had to adopt plastic whistles after this game. The Packers, though, ended up winning the game on a last-second touchdown. Very famous. Now, Kansas City this weekend is forecasted for a high of 12 degrees on Saturday. But this is an evening game. It could be getting down to, like, zero or into the negatives. Meanwhile, the Dolphins will be flying in from Miami where it's going to be a high of, like, 80 degrees. So quite a contrast there. And looking at baseball, Yankees outfielder Juan Soto signed a one-year deal for $31 million. That's a record for arbitration-eligible players. Given that he's one of the youngest players in the game, why is he not getting a longer contract? Well, he will be. I'm sure the te three teams he's now played for have all tried to sign him to a longer deal. You know, the thing with baseball is that, you know, unlike the NBA or the NFL, there's no limits to player or team salaries. You can then maximize that by heading to free agency where it's a free market and anyone can bid on you. But to be eligible for that, you have to play six years. He's only played five, so he's got more and more to go. Now, given that Shohei Otani got $700 million this offseason, I'm sure his sights are set somewhere near there. Now, I'll grant he's not a two-way star like Otani, but he's maybe the best hitter out there. He's five years younger. He's only 25. So his day will come. I'm sure the Yankees hope it's with them, too. All right. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Dave. New Year's resolutions, so many of us make them, but far less of us keep them. In fact, the New Year's resolution failure rate is said to be about 80%. Why is that? And how can we follow through on our promises to ourselves in 2024? We speak with New York City productivity coach Ashley Rudolph. She helps ambitious people and business leaders make strides in their careers and companies. Last year, she made a promise to herself and kept it. Let's hear her story and what advice she has for those who want to do the same. I just had something in me where I wanted something to change in work. I wanted to feel happy with work, but I just wasn't feeling that. So going into 2023, I decided to create this resolution where I wanted to find the light in my work again. Rudolph was a tech executive, but her career just wasn't bringing her the joy she knew was possible. The company she worked for began laying people off. Rudolph helped her colleagues find new jobs. She realized she was good at advising people, so she started her coaching business. My business is called Work With Ashley R. I essentially work with clients throughout their career journeys or throughout the different stages in their career. So I help people with their job search. Um, I also help people navigate how to start a new role, how to impress your new manager, how to uh, create an impact at work in your first 90 days. What does that look like? Rudolph also helps people get promotions at work. She helps her clients set and reach goals. She's therefore uniquely qualified to advise us about making and keeping New Year's resolutions. How does a professional achiever like Rudolph define what a New Year's resolution is in the first place? It's a commitment to yourself or it's a promise to yourself. Um, and when you think about it that way, it's like, okay, well, I'm making a promise to myself. I probably want to keep it. I probably want to make some changes in my day-to-day -to, -day to make sure that I'm helping me. Rudolph says most people think of resolutions as goals, but she says goals can be demotivating. It's important to create resolutions that keep you motivated and inspired throughout the year. Take her 2023 resolution, for example. Rudolph wanted to find the light in her work again. Some people could say, well, what does that mean? But that's the beauty of it. You could wake up 
this week and say, finding the light in my work is going to be to have a meeting where I tell a joke. <laughs> it can be as simple as that, but telling a joke and making yourself laugh and making your colleagues laugh, guess what? That creates a better culture and that's a lasting change. Here's the process Rudolph uses to help her clients. So the first step in my process is reflecting on the past year or reflecting on some period of time. It could be the past month, the past quarter, but it starts with a reflection. And you have to be really candid about the things that you are currently happy with or and things that you're not happy with. The second step in the process she uses to help her clients set and reach goals is to take a deep look at what motivates her clients. And then from there we can say, okay, well, I'm really struggling with this aspect in my life because it's the complete opposite of the thing that motivates me. So that's why the tension is there. Great, here's how we can change that together. Rudolph helps her clients see, think, and act differently than they have been in order to achieve different results in their lives. What's the difference between this method and the way people normally set goals for themselves? You're really taking a deep look at what drives you and what's impactful in your life versus maybe taking a step back and being like, oh yeah, people are saying that I should lose weight or I feel like I should lose weight, so I wanna lose 30 pounds. Well, why is 30 pounds the right number? Rudolph says a more motivating goal might be to aim to be around to watch your grandchildren grow up. It's something that you can stick with, you know, longer than a year, right? She says it's easier to stick with your New Year's resolution if you make one that's more inspiring and flexible. It should feel like your personal mission statement, either for the year or for longer, but it should be something you can turn back to and say, oh yeah, this is why I'm doing this, and mm -hmm. this is why I want to continue to do this. What's the number one piece of advice you have for people um, in order to set and keep New Year's resolutions? Yep. So the number one piece of advice I have is to start from a place of reflection. Um, I think that that makes the biggest difference for folks and it helps them really identify the changes that they need to make. Chris Beers, NTD News. The world's largest cruise vessel is ready to set sail. Known as the Icon of the Seas, the ship was built for Royal Caribbean with a capacity of around 10,000 passengers, five times the size of Titanic. The Icon of the Seas will embark on its inaugural voyage on January 27th, heading from its home in port in Miami to the Eastern Caribbean. The ship is divided into eight neighborhoods, each with a unique theme. One standout feature is the Central Park, which is filled with live plants and various restaurants, creating an outdoor ambiance. The ship hosts a total of over 40 different restaurants and bars, catering to a wide range of tastes and preferences. Another highlight is the ship's innovative water park, the first of its kind at sea, offering six different water slides and tubing experiences for endless fun. It will be very exciting to see the uh, excitement and the positive energy that all the, the guests that come on board will see when they see a spectacular ship like Icon of the Seas. It's a complete destination for anyone that comes on board to find their own places on board to enjoy the, the ultimate vacation. If you struggle with parking, you may want to try this next level technology. 
Hyundai, Hyundai Mobis has unveiled its CrabWalk electric car concept at CES 2024. Each of the car's four wheels can rotate and move independently, which the company is calling an e-corner system. This enables the car to perform unique maneuvers like moving sideways and diagonally, and even executing pivot turns. The technology also makes parallel parking a breeze. It takes a little bit to adjust to the unconventional feel of the car, but Hyundai plans to combine the features with autonomous driving technology. It's really good to people who really can park, like me. Um, they can maybe easily park over like Berkeley or like Streetly, street parking too. I think it's very cool technology. I think it's the sickest thing for when you're at the McDonald's drive-thru and you're too far from the window and you got to do that awkward reach to like give them your money and grab the food, almost spill your drink. You don't got to do that anymore because it can crab walk to the left. And that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories on Monday.